I'm Dave Minaco, Dale Meyer Family Head of School at Parish Episcopal School. Welcome to the From My Angle podcast. Well, we've made it to August and the start of the school year, and whatever it brings our way, is just around the corner. Before we launch with the first episode of our year four in a couple of weeks, I wanted to have a conversation, a final one, with a head of school colleague of mine about what leading and leading schools has entailed since March. You may have enjoyed my June conversation with Laurel School Head Ann Klotz on the topic, and I think you will find this episode equally illuminating. Indeed, days equate to years in the age of the pandemic, so much has changed since Ann and I spoke over a month ago. This conversation was fun to do because it served as a reunion of sorts. I worked with Dr. Noni Thomas-Lopez, the head of the Gordon School in Providence, Rhode Island, nearly a quarter century ago when she was Noni Thomas and we were just cutting our teeth as administrators. I was the founding director of Wake Summer Bridge at Ravenscroft School in Raleigh, North Carolina. I had started the outreach program in 1993. Summerbridge, now known nationally as Breakthrough, offered underserved middle school students from the Wake County Public School System access to a three-year program of summer instruction and school year tutoring and support with all of the teaching done by high school and college students. Noni came to Ravenscroft in 1995 as a young faculty member to teach English and serve as an assistant director for the Wake Summerbridge program. We worked together for a couple of years before she took off to New York to further a career that would eventually carry her to a headship. We have not crossed paths at all since then, remarkably, so this summer I reached out to her to reconnect. Like Anne, Noni is a relative rarity as a female independent school head, even more uniquely in our industry. Noni is a female of color, so I wanted to get her perspective on leading Gordon during this time of two generational moments, the pandemic and the movement for social justice. The Gordon School is a progressive pre-K through eight school in Providence. It serves about 325 students. Noni became head there in 2014 after holding leadership roles at prestigious independent schools in New York City, like Ethical Fieldston School, Nightingale Bamford School, and the Calhoun School. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Noni Thomas-Lopez. Dr. Noni Thomas Lopez, welcome to the From Angle podcast. I'm so glad to have you. Thank you, Dave. It's so good to see you. Staring into our past, some <laughs> decades previous, but we'll get into that as as we go. But uh, for our listeners, happy conclusion to summer, happy almost start of the new school year. As you know, I did a few pop up episodes this summer, and uh, one with Ann Klotz in June. Uh, right. Among the two that I wish to do with. Um, uh, heads of school about leading during the time of the pandemic and the social justice movement. And I know the listeners really enjoyed hearing about Anne's experience at Laurel School. And I wanted to do one more before I kick off the fourth season of the podcast. And so I dug deep into my uh, <laughs> into my resource toolkit and I said, Gosh, who's the head of school that I could really have a great conversation with about both the pandemic and social justice and whom I haven't talked to in a long time about it. So it would be a fresh conversation. And it was... I check all the boxes. Because <laughs> this is a reunion of sorts. It Noni is. and I worked together. She's the head of the Gordon School now in Providence, Rhode Island. But we worked together almost a quarter century ago, 25 years ago, 1998. Yeah. Hard to believe. We'll get into some more of that in the podcast. But I am so grateful that she's here with us on the podcast. So Noni, 
how fun is this? Thank you for doing this. Tell us a little <laughs> bit about how you found your way into a now three-decade career in independent schools yourself. Trace this back through your personal professional history just a bit. Wow, sure. Thank you, David. So good to be here with you and your uh, and your listeners. Um, wow. Um, so you were there at the at the beginning. Um, I had just finished um, a year as an assistant teacher at Greensboro Day School in Greensboro, North Carolina, the school that I graduated from, and. Um, there found my calling as a teacher. Luckily, I got there and did not know what I wanted to do with my life. And they took pity on me and took me to a classroom. And two weeks in, I knew it was what I wanted to, to do. And at the same time, also, I think, discovered that leading was what I wanted mm. to do. Um, there were a lot of um, things that I remembered about my experience as a student of color, as the only black female in my class at Greensboro Day School. Um, and being back there on the other side of the desk, being colleagues now with, with folks that had taught me um, when I was there, mm -hmm. um, I felt like I wanted to be around that table, be in the room where it happened, mm -hmm. um, where decisions were being made that impacted uh, students and exper student experience and faculty experience. So every position I've had you know, since then, um, and you took pity on me <laughs> when I came to Raleigh to start as an English teacher at Ravenscroft, um, had a, a leadership position at, at Wake uh, Summer Bridge uh, with you. Yep. And, um, and I've had these kind of quasi leadership positions alongside um, uh, my teaching uh, role, which I think is the core. Middle school teacher is, mm -hmm. who, middle school English or <laughs> teacher is kind of who I am at my core. Yep. And, um, uh, but the leadership roles meant a lot to me. And then just discovering um, during my time at Little Red Schoolhouse in New York was my first big teaching job in, uh, in New York City, um, the Klingenstein program at, mm -hmm. at, at Teachers College and learning kind of leadership as uh, a skill set mm -hmm. and a set of, 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 of behaviors and, um, and not as something that you're born with, which I had a lot of um, a lack of confidence about that. I saw these great leaders. You were one of them, uh, mm -hmm. Dave and others along the way where I was just, I'm, I know I'm not going to be like them. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, because I'm an introvert or, um, in some cases, um, a woman or a woman of color in a, in a, in, in a predominantly white space and predominantly mm -hmm. male space and learning about the skills of leadership and understanding that it was something that I could study and commit myself to just turn me into a leadership junkie in terms of leadership mm -hmm. development, um, mentorship, coaching that has really become a passion and love of mine. And I think that's led me to steps like being a middle school head, being an assistant head um, at, at Fieldston in New York, and then seeking a, a headship here um, at the Gordon School um, and finding a, a school that I think really aligns with my values and, and who I've been and tried to be as, a, as an educator and a person has given um, me relief <laughs> uh, that the head of school position is something that I love and, um, and good at, quite frankly, um, I think. <laughs> I, I, am sure, I am sure you are. You've been in the role now six or so years, but you spend a, a preponderance of your time in New York City at some of the you know, uh, true uh, um, well-heeled and, and excellent schools there. And you mentioned Nightingale Bamford, you were at Calhoun yeah. and, uh, and also at, uh, at Fieldston, which is 
you know, a 1700 uh, student school with yeah. you know, 300 plus faculty members, including a faculty union. Right. It is a complicated place to be an assistant head of school. So you I think there are three unionized private schools in New York and I've been at two of them. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, that is no, no small stakes in our industry, but you mentioned Wake uh, Summer Ridge and sort of our, our, yeah. our, our past there in those few years. And, and so um, just, just for listeners sake, we can talk a, a second or two about what, what Wake Summer Bridge is because any time that I cite uh, sort of the um, catapulting leadership experience, you know, people are surprised that I go all the way back to when I was 25 yep. and yep. still cite it as such. So in concept, tell everybody what the, what the program, what the program did. Sure. So the, the program, I think, ser serves two purposes. Um, one is to uh, provide, um, I think, um, ed educational uh, opportunities for, for students in local uh, public schools taking uh, classes um, uh, during uh, uh, the summer, um, math, science, mm -hmm. um, humanities, uh, but they're taught by high school and college students. So you're also bringing uh, young folks into the education profession and connecting uh, young people um, on both sides of the equation. Um, uh, was it elementary? Is the is the age we were middle, middle school? Yeah, middle it, it, school uh, kids that were there. The yeah, yep, middle school kids alongside high school and, and college kids learning together um, uh, along the way, and also I think a great focus on the social emotional. Um, well-being of, of, of students. And that's kind of a big buzzword now, but I think mm -hmm. back when we were doing that, it wasn't kind of the topic um, at hand. Uh, SEL was not on the tip of anyone's tongue. And I think Wake Summer Bridge or the Summer Bridge program were leaders in really yeah. seeing that as an important aspect of the work. And my work was coordinating the mentorship uh, program. And again, you and um, and and Ravenscroft having confidence in someone mm -hmm. who was three years out of undergrad take that on and I think that that um, for for me has been um, a constant theme in in kind of the steps that I've taken is that you don't have to be an expert in a particular field in order to be able to support teach bring others along Yep. And so I'm sitting there in my third year as a teacher mentoring high school teachers yep. how to mentor middle school students. Middle school students exactly. <laughs> yeah. And so I learned so much from that, but the confidence that you gain in knowing that you can do that and have an impact on, on, um, on, on young people, um, I think, uh, again, like you, catapulted me into thinking, wow, mm -hmm. I could lead um, in other aspects of, of school and in, in life, actually. Yeah, Summer Bridge was a bit of a misnomer of a name. It was an eight-week summer program with a week right. of training for the young people who were going to teach and then a week of breakdown with them and a six-week academic program for the middle school kids who were bussed in from all over, in our case, Wake County, right. there in, in Raleigh. But then throughout the school year, we offered Saturday-based programming. And as you mentioned, sort of this uh, kind of full family support for yes, these other yes. students from the public schools. So it had started in 19, um, you know, in the, in the 1980s at, uh, at University High School in San Francisco, but in the early 90s, when you and I got involved with it, it was in a fairly significant um, expansion phase. And it's still around today called yep, Breakthrough, Breakthrough, not yep. Summer Bridge. And it is essentially housed at an independent school and then, uh, you know, really informs the work in public schools. It predates much of 
um, the movement of private schools with a public purpose, purpose this notion yeah. of, of private schools really trying to become more connected to the to the places that they exist within yeah. uh, kind of a foretelling of the notion of, of our own reckoning around our privilege in independent schools and our need to not be insular and yeah. to train our kids to not be insular. Um, and it was, as you mentioned, I think, um, a place where we young people were given keys to a kingdom, you know, <laughs> and so many, many, you know, <laughs> many today wonder like, oh, you're kind of a visionary or an entrepreneurial person. I was not that way by genetics. You know, it was not that wasn't not the quite. way that I was spit out. But um, Breakthrough Summerbridge put me into a context of young people my age who were ambitious and interested and provocative and, and challenged me. And it gave me, as you mentioned, this faith to come in and start something from scratch, to raise money for the first time, to build programming for the first time, to think innovatively about how programming work. So all of those elements of very much who I am at Fiverr as a leader today, you know, 30 plus years in, 12 years into a headship, I, I trace back seminally to that, um, to, to that experience with, um, with with Summerbridge, so that's where our that's where our history uh, goes, and it's not just cool and funny as a reunion piece. It is actually fertile soil from which I think we both were grown. Oh, no doubt, no yeah. doubt. I I go back to that experience uh, a lot, and actually in New York um, was part of another project called Go Project, mm -hmm. which was very similar. Um, young you know folks um, running a, a, a program serving. Um, public school families, which are in a, a, a very underserved district in, in New York, and bringing um, independent school educators, uh, public school educators together um, on independent school campuses. And um, it's like, you know, it was like getting right back on a bike. And I'd had all the experience, you mm -hmm. know, when I was, what, 22 years old, yeah. um, to come in there and help run that program. So um, I think that we think about, you know, Summer Bridge a lot from the you know, the middle school student perspective and the high school and college, but there's leaders in that program um, right. that, that also gained so much from that, from that as yeah. well. I mean, there are so many Summerbridge people that are heads of school across the country and are oh, doing no incredibly dynamic things in yeah. the world of education or in some instances over in the private sector. The, um, the folks that I, that, that I and, and you and I were running with were yeah. um, exceptionally talented people. So uh, a great experience and somewhat of a, connected point to your present context, uh, Providence and Rhode Island were fertile uh, Summerbridge places. I traveled to Providence uh, several times for uh, Summerbridge-based meetings back in the day. You probably had no idea you'd end up in, uh, no. in, in, in Providence. <laughs> and I don't know how many of the listeners here in Dallas have ever stepped foot in that fine Eastern town where you can get a great Italian meal. But uh, tell us about yeah, Gordon. Great. For those of us that have never stepped on the Gordon School's campus, have you really had to distill it to a word what would that word be that would help us get an image of Gordon School? Oh, for a, a one word is hard, but the word that keeps coming back up for me mm -hmm. when I talk about the school is community. Mm -hmm. And I know that sounds, you know, um, in some ways maybe cliche, but I have, I have yet to be a part. Uh, I, I have not previous to Gordon been a part of a community like the one that I'm a part of, of, of now. And the, the, belief that families and students and faculty have in the mission of, of the school um, that uh, has evolved over the years, but I think really centers around this deep idea of belonging and the importance of the sense of belonging in a school community and what that means 
um, not only and importantly from the academic perspective, but from the identity perspective and the service perspective. I understand who I am. I know what my values are. And this is how I want to serve the world with that understanding. And that looks very different for, for the folks um, that are part of the community now and that have graduated or moved on. Mm-hmm. But I think it's deeply centered in this idea of, um, of me and we, of, of knowing who I am mm-hmm. and having a place of, of belonging and expression and then thinking about how that's going to be uh, something that's going to serve others and serve the world. And so uh, for me, this idea of community is where it's at because I've just felt this very deep line of connection between leadership, faculty, and staff, um, of parents and families and caregivers and our students and our alums. Um, Coming to a nursery through eight school, and previously I've been at at K through 12s, this idea about kind of alumni connection and how you do it in a, in a nursery through eighth is not been a problem here the, you know, because they, the, the folks love the school so much and parents especially can trace the things that they are proud about their children back to Gordon school. And I think that's ultimately what I love is that it's just good people. And I love New York and I love the schools that I've worked in. It's just not an easy place to be from in a lot of a lot of ways as a as an administrator particularly Um, and here uh, I've just found um, uh, a community that really takes that idea of our bonds to one another Mm -hmm. uh, seriously and it's Mm -hmm. a core identity um, of the school and it's a progressive school so in other words that that pedagogy is very much collaborative and about create creativity it's constructivist so you're going to have yeah. busy active kids I think you subscribe Absolutely. to a really progressive pedagogy with your 325 or 30 students in your hour oh, up to 348 oh you go girl good for you <laughs> uh, and so you get 350 <laughs> students or so and yeah. um it's a it's a really diverse community in reading up about it I mean you're yeah. almost half of your students are students of color so yeah. You know, you talk about this notion of community and belonging and sense of identity. It sounds like um, the community takes that commitment, not just the academic commitment to uh, to creative, fertile learning, but also this this notion of of bringing diverse kids together to to become who they are very seriously. Yeah. um, In terms of being a progressive school, it really, you know, I think folks get confused and they think about progressive politics. And I think academic spaces generally in this country are more liberal. I can, I can, Mm -hmm. you know, sure, got it. But I think that people get very confused, especially now with a lot of the binaries happening. You hear progressive school and, um, and I think that's a misnomer because I think that we, um, uh, for me, what it means is that students really are at the center of the learning and the partnership between um, the, the teachers and the student in the classroom is sacred. Um, and that means the teacher uh, looks at a student, a three-year-old, and is wondering and looking at what that student can teach them. And what can I learn? What can I understand from the student? And that's a great kind of honor, I think, to give to a child that... Um, their questions, their wonderings, their inquiries are going to now become part of the curriculum. Yep, very Deweyan, very Montessorian. Uh, yep. We at Parish consider ourselves to be, um, as a younger school, only you know, 
uh, 15 years or so into adding a middle and upper school on a 30 year pre-K through six school, um, you know, we consider ourselves to be, um, again, more forward looking and, and progressive yeah. in, in that way. But what's dominating the um, kind of what's dominating the community um, mindset? It's been such a turbulent last five months, pandemic, yeah. followed by social justice movement. So like if you had to pick a couple of words that, you know, have been coming across your screen as the leader of that community from your faculty, staff, employees, from your parents, from you know, your students to the degree that your older students are really putting to words what they've experienced. What are a couple of the words that have been central in, in the Gordon community? Well, I think, you know, again, I think we've all heard it, but it's just true as uncertainty. And I think that that's kind of what's happening in the school and what's happening in the world. And again, how do we manage our individual concerns, anxieties, and very real priorities against the collective? And I think that, um, uh, that's been, I think, the push and pull of this crisis um, uh, uh, so far is that um, it's, you know, in this country or in our, in our schools or in our kind of, you know, American DNA, there's a very strong individualistic spirit. And even in progressive schools, the individual is, 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 is prized. Um, we want to make sure our classrooms meet the needs of individual uh, students uh, from their academic needs to affirming racial identity um, to understanding what family circumstances are and how we need to address those. But I think we're in a moment now where our literal survival depends on us thinking about the collective. And, um, and um, I think that for me, that and for um, what I'm happy to say that keeps coming up in our community is this idea of community and how our actions um, and how our decisions are going to impact um, the person, uh, you know, six months ago that would have been sitting across from us, but now across the screen from us. Mm -hmm. And so that I think has driven a lot of the, the, the work around, you know, COVID-19 is yep. thinking and talking about how we have to be in this together. It's not just a tagline. Yep. In order for this to be successful, we have to work together. We have to trust one another. Trust is a big word that's come up. And that's, that's so uh, hard. That's actually <laughs> that I, I, each year I pick a, a, a word-based theme yeah. primarily for the employees, but it's also going to be the, the word that uh, I focus through my podcast, yeah. belonging, as it turns out. And wow. this, year, this year it's together. And, yes. you know, it, it's multidimensional, right? It's, uh, it's the notion, as you say, to be essential. We're all telling our communities this. If you want to be back, we've yeah. got to work at it together here to make yes. our place risk mitigated and as safe as possible. We've got to work at it away from school. Yeah. We're following protocol to get you back. But you know what else? Being together in our communities is going to be, at this time in our, in our world, as you're just suggesting, somewhat elusive. Yeah. Because, you know, you've got the individual and the collective needs bumping up each other. You got, well, you should start school, but you shouldn't start school. You got, this isn't the way we should be tackling the, the race and equity issues in our country. This is, so this, this idea of how to bring communities together at this point is really compelling to me so much so yeah. um, that, you know, I want to um, think and, and talk about it a lot with the guests that I bring on this year and with leaders yeah. to really um, pick at the challenge of trying yeah. to unify communities in this incredibly um, segmented and fissured mm. and tense time in our country, right? It's just yeah. so, it's so that's incredible. So, that's the work. I, I really believe that. And sometimes it's hard just, you know, if you look on TV and you're like, how is it possible to kind of overcome where we seem to find ourselves? And um, and I don't mean that in a politicized way. That I, I, I mean, I 
feel in lots of different ways and spaces. And this crisis has, I think, um, exacerbated that. It's like getting it, folks are getting into their corners and how can we kind of build the spaces where we're coming together? It doesn't mean we need to agree on everything, but how can we have conversations across our differences in, in ways that move us all forward? And I think yeah, there's, are, there's, um, yeah, there's, there's uh, fear and hurt and, and mm-hmm. there's, uh, so there's their fear and hurt, whether it's about the pandemic or social justice, and then there's a, a mistrust. Mm-hmm. So institutionally, mm-hmm. if you're moving this way, are you trying to change the way mm-hmm. my child mm-hmm. has been raised or the things that he or she thinks about? Right. So that's an undercurrent. And then as you're yeah. suggesting, everybody's just sort of t- tucked into their corner, you know, yeah. throw, throwing jabs and throwing yeah. barbs. And I, I am, and I am intimidated to the point of being overwhelmed sometimes about really figuring out how to bring them to the center of the ring. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. really at this point, you know, we're kind of limited to the conversation format that you and I are having talking through, through screens, but right. you, you went to a large, you know, K-12 school, pre-K-12 school, have yeah. worked with several, you know, I lead a school, 1150, you know, kids and, 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 and up and a 200 plus employees. Like, is there anything like, are you noticing a difference in terms of how the K-8 community would be mm. thinking about the pandemic and this notion of the individual versus the collective than it would have been at, um, you know, Ethical Fieldston School in Manhattan or any of the big places you've been familiar with? Yeah, I think that um, for, for me, and at the, for me, this preceded the, the pandemic is the lack of a high school has really, um, uh, in some ways, in my perspective, made it much easier to lead in terms of feeling like you are addressing um, the needs of the entire community. I feel like in the K through 12s that I've been a part of, the high school takes a lot of precedence and, um, and you're getting towards college. So families are kind of losing their minds. <laughs> it was so reasonable before, <laughs> um, for, for folks who had committed and believed in a progressive education as they moved up, mm-hmm. became less, um, uh, interested in those approaches um, as the realities of, you know, is my kid going to learn math and are they going to get into the college I want to, you know. So for me, a lot of the, the pressures of the high school got pressed down in K yeah. through 12s yeah. so that lower schools in some ways were really looking at the high school yeah. and that was kind of guiding everyone's programming. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, so for, to have a school where we're seeing uh, we're looking just very closely at the developmental um, needs of three-year-olds up through 14-year-olds and looking at those as two very formative kind of developmental stages or, or, or three early childhood, lower and middle developmental stages for, for young people and seeing leadership as an important part of, of that work. How can kids in nursery be leaders? How can middle, lower schoolers be leaders? How can middle schoolers be the leaders of the entire school mm-hmm. rather than what my middle school says, do a bad impression of what leadership looks like in upper, <laughs> upper school. Yeah. And so I think what we've seen in our graduates and, and how it's been important in times like this is that students have confidence in themselves at very young ages to speak out, to wonder how they can be uh, involved and they're empowered day to day to lead now and not that they're being prepared to do it when they get to a particular stage, usually upper school. Um, So I'm not saying K through 12s don't have great leadership and great programs. It just feels very different from someone who's 
was educated in one and yep. has been a teacher and leader in one for many years, that pressure of being gone, it allows, um, uh, it, it has allowed for us to, I think, um, really have children uh, across the board empowered um, in lots of different ways to partner with us in this really hard work that we have in front of us. Yeah, I feel like the, I feel like the, the, the more binary thinking and the, and the kind of camping out certainly mm -hmm. accompanies the older community, you know, the yeah. older student community. And to your point, I think really creates, it creates some challenges. And your kids are going to leave to, um, you know, whether it's Wheeler or Moses Brown. I mean, there are a ton of really, you know, a ton of really good schools in a relatively right, small yeah. market there. And yeah. they have, they have the ability to go into those places. And then it, yeah. with the foundation that you've laid for them, uh, really take on, you know, in a Quaker meeting at Moses Brown, for example, right really have their voice, uh, have, have their voice, have their voice be heard. Um, and that's what we hear from the schools is that they, they know the Gordon students when they're, when they're there. Um, yep. And it's the leadership piece that they keep coming back to that they are ready on day one in ninth grade to, um, to have the hard conversations, to ask good questions, to take on, you know, lead roles, you know, on the stage, they're ready to go. And I think that that's a distinctive feature of, you know, pre-K or nursery through eighth grade programs uh, is that I really think that middle schoolers have confidence when middle school is such a hard time. Yeah. I think they when, leave us very confident in who they are and what they can when do. I, when I spoke to Anne in June, um, you know, she, she was having, she was having to do some, a lot of work with the kids following the killing of George Floyd and, and uh, the uh -huh. emergence of the, of the social justice movement, which was happening for all of us, at least in this part of the country, right. really after school had concluded. I'm right. wondering, either around the pandemic or around the social justice movement, have you had to do more um, touch touch base and and program provision for your um, kids, or is it again not so much of a feature of a of a K eight program? It's a it's a feature, but I will say at Gordon, and one of the reasons that I'm you know I'm proud to be here is that those conversations were features of the program before. George Floyd. George Floyd was a seminal moment. And I think that it means something very important for this, this country um, and our schools in particular. Um, but, you know, my predecessor, Ralph Wales, who was head of, you know, Gordon for 24 years before I arrived, um, and our board of trustees who um, put, you know, particular strategic plans around diversity, equity, inclusion uh, in place, years before when I was down with you in, wow. in Ravenscroft, Gordon was starting this work. And so um, when these things come up, um, the children already have the language um, to start to, to think and talk about it. Um, do we go into nursery classrooms and, and say, guess what happened today? Kids know, but kids take that in. They know something is happening, can feel things are going on. And you have teachers who are trained to recognize that and bring the right books into a story circle and, uh, and create advisory spaces for these conversations um, in, uh, in middle school. We already had a, um, you know, our students of color affinity group um, was ready to go and we were quickly able to put together, um, you know, um, a white student affinity group for conversations after, after George Floyd. And I didn't get a ruffled feather from one white parent that we had invited kids into that, into that space. At Fieldston, we were in the New York Magazine <laughs> for having affinity groups in our lower school. So I think that the, 
the strong leadership that preceded me has created yeah. a space where when these things come up, we have teachers who are ready and trained and comfortable having these conversations. Um, and we have administrators who can help families guide us through, you know, guide them through. I don't think we are perfect. And I know that we have work to do. I think we have particular work to do around our, um, the experience of African-American boys, black boys at Gordon school. Mm -hmm. And we're digging into that, you know, um, this year. Um, so I think that, you know, the work continues, but I think that, um, it's good to feel like we're not starting from square one. It's good to feel like I'm not in a community where folks are surprised by what happened to George Floyd and what's yeah. happened in terms of the experience of black folks in this country. Um, and, um, and then there's more work to do. So that, that, that's what we're, we're on. Yeah, it sounds like you're really well prepared to do it. And kudos to, to, the, um, to the organization of trustees and leadership and, and faculty and parents that have really poured into that work over the last mm -hmm. quarter, quarter century. So mm -hmm. that is, that is mm -hmm. impressive. So as a leader, you know, you are, um, you, you know, uh, you mentioned it in, in the open, effectively, that sort of sense of voice and confidence, you know, independent schools are, are power lever controlled by right. white males to oh. a great degree. Two thirds of the heads of our institutions are, are, are white males. And mm -hmm. so you're um, in the minority there as a woman. And then, you know, another um, 10 to 15 percent of the heads of color, independent of gender, are heads of color. Um, in our, in our, you know, 1800 schools or so across the country that are NIS type schools. So how, how has your identity, you know, really informed the pressures or, or sensations that you felt coming through the pandemic experience and mm -hmm. uh, the social justice movement, just as a leader, like where, yeah. what, what's been, what's been your sensation? Well, I think with um, with George Floyd, I, I, the, for the first time kind of in my leadership, a journey, I was a little stuck on how to communicate with my community because I was feeling um, that that video, um, no, though I didn't watch it um, all, even the few seconds they would play on TV and knowing how it ended, it, um, I think like many people, um, it, it brought a lot up for me emotionally, particularly as the mother of a black male um, and, uh, and uh, a, a woman who has black brothers and a black father. Um, it brought up a lot for me emotionally and I was not in a great place to be able, in my mind, to effectively kind of put out one of those things that heads of school always kind of put out when something happens in the world. Um, because I needed to just deal with what I was dealing with and um, and I wondered, am I failing kind of my community as a leader because I'm not right on my laptop getting ready to get something out? And what I got is that I could not be effective um, to my community um, uh, if I didn't take care of myself and do what I needed to take care of myself in that moment. And so I just asked for help. And I talked to my board chair and members of my leadership team. And I said, white folks, you got to take this one <laughs> You got to take this one on. I can't, um, I, I, I don't feel that I want or should be this first voice um, through my leadership, through my life, um, um, and through the example that I've given as a leader at Gordon and other places. 
folks should be very clear about where I am on this and where I believe our community should be on this. And, and white folks have to get to work and, and white folks have to invite other people um, into, into that work. So the first message from our community actually came from my board chair and the white members of our, of our leadership team and, and named that, um, uh, that, uh, it was work that we were committing to together and needed to do that. Mm-hmm. Once that was done, I felt a great weight lifted that gave me the ability to think and mm-hmm. reflect as the head of school of Gordon, and then to be able to write something that I that felt right to me, that felt meaningful to me, and ultimately, from what the feedback I received, had a very positive um, impact on the community when they when they received it. So yeah. um, I just had to. I think in most of the time in my role, I'm pretty good about, um, I think, you know, it's not about separating the personal and and the professional. It's always integrated, but I just felt a a loss at a moment about how to integrate it in a way that felt right for me, that felt authentic for me and felt that it was going to serve the community best. And again, I think my instincts just served me well to just ask, you know, folks for help. And, um, and very grateful that, that they, they, they stepped up. That's a powerful um, takeaway from your, your story and, and sharing, and thanks for doing that. It's just the sure. element of healthy governance, you know, where the, the, the governing body's role in independent schools is to, is to support the head, you yeah. know, and to really be there and not just from a policy standpoint, but, you know, really from an emotional standpoint to be a buttress and, and in difficult times and, and provide that, um, that, that kind of shrouding and cocooning of the head. So I'm glad that you, I'm glad that you, that you received that, you know, but you, you know, you, this is your first headship, but not the beginning yeah. of your first headship. So, you know, what was Oh, no, it that? is. I, I, this is year, I just finished year two. That I'm year going two. Into okay, year so second year. Yeah, yeah. So, so, you know, as you got into it, did you, as you, as you kind of experienced this and then they kind of. Uh, with your assistant headship and other like significant right. administrative roles, hardest time in your leadership career, or you know, or or maybe not. Like, where how would you how would you place it? Yeah, I would I would say it has not been the hardest time in my leadership career, and that has to do with the team that I'm a part of. Mm-hmm. And you know, if talking about learning leadership skills, like a first team mentality has really yeah. driven a lot of what I've been doing here at Gordon School and the team has stepped up in some incredible ways. Um, it's, we have a lot of fun together, which means a lot to me, but I have thought very carefully about how to curate that team and curate our team culture and to have folks really feel an authentic um, voice at the table. Um, I'm not one that really goes, you know, and has one conversation with my CFO that I'm not having with the mm-hmm. rest of the, of, of the team. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think people feel like they, um, that, that the, the running of the school, the leading of the school really is a team effort, even if I'm the, the head of that, that effort. So the reason that the hardest time that I've had in my career was when that team concept broke down. Um, and I felt alone either without oh, mentor, mentorship yeah. or without a team that could really be effective together. And so it gives you this feeling of helplessness. And I think that's the hardest thing for me as a leader, if I feel like I know what the right thing to do could be but we can't execute it. And I feel like these are hard challenges that we're facing right now at Gordon and and, and, in all of our schools, but I have so much confidence in the team and the community that I feel like we're gonna get our heads around the table. We're gonna figure this out. We're gonna support the community and and build that trust and 
uh, and be grateful for what we get, <laughs> you know, yeah. in terms of, of, of our community. Um, but I would not say it's been the hardest time in my leadership. It's been the most exhausting time uh, in yeah. terms of sleep and taking yeah, yeah. care of myself and, yeah. and, um, and being on top of everything that needs to be on top of, but not the hardest time in my, in my leadership. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, and maybe that's a better frame of the question, you know, because I, I, if I were to think back, I would definitely say it's been the, I would say, I, I asked the question, I think, with the presumption that that would be your answer, and it's mine, like, it is right. hard, not, and I have an awesome team here, like, yeah. I'm not for without all the restorative support and sense of hope and optimism that you can take away from having a unified team working with you, I've got that in spades, it's just been the sort of relentlessness of the decision yes. making, yes. like, just the relentlessness of of the uncertainty and the, and yes. the you know, decision, next decision, revised decision, yeah. and that coupled with um, the absolute loss of sustaining joy that comes <laughs> from the interaction of, of the full school community. So, yeah. you know, we'll all work really hard in independent schools because when we step outside our offices, there's, there's this sense of energy and electricity and joy yeah. that is uh, essentially resultant of the work that you're putting in. Yeah. Now all I feel like I'm doing all day is solving problems and to a certain degree arbitrating these discussions that we've yeah. talked about between yeah. binary, uh, you know, polls arguing about different points. <laughs> so, you know, I said to, I've said to Molly several times over the course of the summer, um, I'm going to love my job again someday. <laughs> you, you know, not a, not not as a uh, as a as a woe is me, but yeah. as as a as a as a sort of aspiration. And, yes. and, and, a, and a look forward to that day to mm -hmm. just kind of continue to sustain me through this period of time yeah. when it's just been really lopsided. Yeah. Yeah. You know, really lopsided. All that's the, been all my the problems. Yeah. Administration and none of the joys. Yeah. I think that's my fear of, of, um, of that lot, feeling that real loss of joy as we start this new school year. Yeah. Because I think I saw the spring as kind of this discrete moment in time. Once we get to this, get through the summer, we can kind yeah. of not get back to normal, normal, but you know, we'll be back together. And, um, you know, I was, I don't think I was deluding myself, but maybe. Um, and so, but now thinking about, even if we were back at school and me not being able to walk the hallways, you know, that I'm going to have to be in my office. And in some ways when I was um, virtual, I could be in more places than I could when we were on campus. Like I could go to different advisory group meetings in middle school because they're being held at different times, not at the same time every morning. So I could pop into all of these places in the school that were impossible for me to do when we were in person and now that's gone and it could be gone if we're back in the building that I can't even leave my office that much. So I think what you're talking about is something that I have been worrying about more as we head towards the, the school year um, is that real loss of connection um, that, that comes from just bumping into people, you know, in the, in the hallways. Totally. Yeah. And so, yeah, kind of closing. So like we're, where are you all as of right now in terms of your, your plans? You, I suspect you may be starting after Labor Day anyway. Would that have been your normal start date? 
So we um, start, I think, like the first week of September. So sometimes it falls before um, Labor Day. Sometimes it falls after. This one, it's before. Mm -hmm. So we um, just yesterday, I let my community know that we were delaying um, a week uh, for in-person and being on campus. And that is um, because our governor announced yesterday that one of the metrics for the state for reopening had not been met, which is um, having testing uh, at capacity where you could get results. Um, number one, that you could get many, many people tested and two, that you could get the results within 48 or 72 hours. Mm-hmm. So that's a metric the state set and they, and they are not there yet. And so the governor delayed public school um, um, openings around um, them needing more time to plan. We're ready. Um, we, could, we could open on our, on our regular date, but I can't open the doors until the governor says the testing is in place. And they won't give us that announcement to the week that we were scheduled to reopen. So yeah. we pushed that a week. Our plan is still to have our folks on campus. We just have a particular building and facilities that allow us to do some, some really great things in terms of the stable the stable cohorts and keeping um, kids out of hallways and, and having outdoor classrooms. So I feel great about our plan and there are just some things that are outside of our hands. Um, and so, um, but you know, health and safety, you know, uh, is, is going to be number one. And yeah, um, even though it's super hard for your, you know, nursery, you know, through probably fourth grade kids to really get deep into the tech, it's just difficult. It puts more pressure on your parents effectively, right? When, oh, you're, absolutely. In, when you're in that remote standing, but yeah. um yeah, it, it's, it sounds it sounds like once they get back, your facility is going to be well well healed to keep them in a in a, in a good in a good place for learning and, and wellness. Yeah, we just need everyone to behave so we can get back together. You know that more Which than most in Texas. The K eight <laughs> versus the K twelve challenge, right? Yeah, just you know you've got an upper school of you know four hundred and thirty kids, and um, their their behavior both on campus and off campus is going to be much less cohort based. I mean, there's just going to be much more. Um, yes. potential um, uh, social connectivity and yes. um, and so that's a, a big challenge for us down here and, and our state is not quite as guided by a set of unified <laughs> metrics so we we much more exhibit the america diplomatically said <laughs> yeah, libertarian individual perspectives versus the communal ones are on full display yeah. um, down here so we're going to be starting um on the 27th in our from a distance platform yeah. and then really uh, there were orders locally that have kind of since been rescinded that would allow us to um, go back in person after um, after Labor Day. Right. We're going to have to continue to look at um, mm-hmm. the same metrics you've referenced, which in the state right. are um, much higher than what yeah. the North in general is, yeah. is experienced at this point. So yeah. um, still, still some data to interpret over the next several weeks and, uh, and, and difficult decisions to make, but that's yeah. what that's, that's a wise ahead for us, but we exactly. are by uh, forced by Wake Summerbridge back in the <laughs> 90s. We could do it, Noni. Amen. <laughs> well, it's been great catching up. Thanks for spending some time talking shop with uh, with me and, and sharing your sharing your perspectives and good luck. Thank you. Good it's work. been a pleasure. Good luck to you as well. Yes. And um, we, we will we will connect again um, and, um, and ensure that it's not another quarter century. I promise. Absolutely. It's good to see you, Dave. Good luck with everything. Absolutely. Talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to this edition of the From My Angle podcast. Please share it with friends and colleagues in your network. I look forward to kicking off the new season of From My Angle later this month to ruminate on my theme for the year, the word together. We will begin with consultant, author, and facilitator Gino Church, 
who will help us consider why we humans gather in the first place and what makes a gathering both vital and memorable. I'm looking forward to a terrific season on the podcast. Join us later this month.